So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1444, Emily Maloney, author of The Cost of Living, a collection of essays about her life experience dealing with illness, money, and medicine. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I was diagnosed and treated for bipolar disorder. And during that period, it was over five years, I was prescribed 26 medications. And at one point I attempted suicide. That landed me in the hospital with significant medical debt. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We are kicking off a mini series here on the podcast covering the cost of living in America today. While there are many economic indicators that suggest that inflation is lowering, employment is steady, GDP is rising, the reality for many Americans is that it is extremely difficult today, more than ever, to pay for basic living necessities. Today, we're talking about the state of health insurance and how this has become an unattainable basic necessity for so many of us. Emily Maloney is the author of The Cost of Living, which is a collection of essays about her personal experience dealing with illness, money, and medicine. She has the perspective of both a patient and a professional. Emily is a survivor of the difficulties many of us face while navigating the healthcare system. And we discuss the many failures of the pharmaceutical industry and the structural inefficiencies of the hospital and insurance networks. Emily also provides advice for those of us navigating the healthcare system, whether we are currently trying to afford a medical procedure, trying to find good healthcare, and advocate for ourselves. Here's Emily Maloney. Emily Maloney, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much for having me, Farnish. We're going to have an important conversation. Uh, Your story started with your own experiences navigating the U.S. healthcare system. You wrote a book that captures that journey, a collection of essays about your life experience dealing with illness, money, and medicine. The book is called The Cost of Living, and it's all told from your perspective as a patient and a professional. You are an EMT, an emergency room tech, and a drug rep. And so maybe we could start with before you wrote the book, obviously going through uh, the experiences that you did, what was the moment where you realized I need to tell these stories? This is this is not something I need to just keep to myself. Absolutely. Um, so I had I kept having these experiences where I would say something about you know oh I've been writing about you know, working in the ER, or I've been writing about, um, you know, I worked in middle management for a pharmaceutical company. And people would come up to me and they'd say, oh, you know, I, I have medical debt, or I had a terrible experience with diagnosis as well. And I just kept having these experiences where people's stories would mirror mine. And I thought, oh, gosh, <laughs> the, the problem is bigger than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um and and I think that that was sort of my initial uh, foray into that. Mm-hmm. What were you struggling with? What was the illness? So um, I was diagnosed and treated for bipolar disorder. Um, and during the, that 
period. It was over five years. I was prescribed 26 medications. um, And at one point I attempted suicide and that landed me in the hospital with significant medical debt. Mm. Um, And it was that medical debt that sort of followed me everywhere I went um, for many, many years. And I knew I had to write about this experience because, you know, I, I kept having these other, um, you know, other, other folks would say, Hey, you know, uh, I was also diagnosed, um, or misdiagnosed. I think it's really common as a woman, um, to, you know, not be taken seriously by the medical industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was something else that sort of made me think, oh gosh, you know, I've got to write something about this. You say you were misdiagnosed and, and there were also moments where you, you know, you, you witnessed how hospitals would cost cut and ration resources and how that affected patients. Can you take us behind the scenes a little bit of your hospital experiences and how, whether consciously or subconsciously, the system really shortcuts its patients? I worked in a number, a couple of different hospitals, but um, the one that I write about most, um, when I started working there, our hospital was $54 million in debt. And this was really common for small, high-use healthcare uh, centers, right? So like, you know, community hospitals, they don't have a lot of resources. A lot of their patients can't pay their medical bills. They accumulate debt. That debt um, creates rationing. And then that rationing, you know, of course, trickles back down to patients. So, you know, we, we had older equipment um, or we were, you know, dealing with, you know, medical billing errors on a frequent basis where, you know, oh gosh, you know, someone got billed for X, Y, Z. You know, we were routinely told to bill up in, you know, when, when in doubt um, and that someone else would audit our, our medical billing. But, you know, that was sort of a a profound realization that like, oh Mm -hmm. gosh, you know, I am, you know, in some ways directly responsible for this healthcare debt that I'm assigning to someone else. Right. It's just so fascinating because we don't often put it in that perspective. We don't think about what the hospital's debt is and how that's trickling down into the decisions they make. Um, I, I mean, personally, I remember when a, a friend of mine, she was she had a premature birth for her twins and mm-hmm. the hospital wanted to move her twins to a different hospital. Uh, for whatever reason, they they said it was oh they have better facilities, but she was like it's a risk to move my newborn, my premature birthed kids, put them in, in the, it, like the trauma of like moving them from here into a, an ambulance. I can't be with them, right. and then she did some research and discovered that like I guess came down to money. The other hospital was affiliated with the doctor or whatever and they want she wanted to like give it to her other hospital or something or other like it was not about the best giving the best care to the the patients and and oftentimes that doesn't get disclosed it doesn't get unveiled how did you discover this you just kind of like went online and did some research and found out oh there's actually a bigger reason for what's what's happening i mean a lot of what I experienced um, working in the ER, you know, we would sub in as medical billers when the ER was quiet, um, which is a forbidden term among uh, people who work in emergency departments, you know, never say quiet Mm -hmm. because, you know, you'll get busy again. Uh, But 
I think that, you know, there's, there's that, there's a lot of, um, you know, I think the, the intention on some different levels is to obfuscate, right? So there's, there's a lot of mystery around medical billing. There's a lot of mystery around healthcare dissemination. We have no standardized electronic medical record system. So, you know, you can go to one hospital and they have some information for you. You go to another hospital, they have other information for you. And ultimately, patients suffer. I, I think that's really common, um, unfortunately, in this country. Where do you even begin to fix, quote unquote, fix the, the, the system? I mean, what is the anchor here? What is the nucleus of this problem at the end of the day? Is it just capitalism? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah. But also, I think that, you know, I, I really strongly believe that we need a single payer healthcare system in this country, um, you know, and having, you know, so many middlemen, whether it's pharmacy benefit managers, those are intermediaries between the pharmaceutical company and the pharmacy or patient at the end of the line, they're taking a piece of the pie, you know, health insurance, I think should be illegal. Um, and there should be just a system for everyone to receive care. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the myth in, you know, in this country is that this quality of care costs a lot and that we would have to pay people a lot more and, you know, the system would cost a lot more. But, you know, as we've seen in other countries, that's actually not true. It's just a question of who ends up paying for that care, whether it's, you know, the case of your friend who, you know, had preemie twins or, you know, if it's someone else who's receiving a, you know, medical bill and they're self-pay and they don't have health insurance, you know, ultimately the patient, the consumer is the one who's actually incurring the cost. And so I think, you know, A, we need a single payer healthcare system. I think it would be great if we could have a standardized electronic medical record system. So that way we could give better care. Um, so we could see, you know, oh, hey, uh, this patient, you know, was most recently on XYZ medication, or this patient is allergic to this medication, you know, because a lot of the time when people come into the emergency department, they're having the worst day of their life, right? And, you know, maybe they're not having the worst day of their life. Um, that's another problem. Uh, people often use the ER who shouldn't be using the ER. But a lot of these, mm -hmm. these problems, you know, sort of show up and then people aren't able to advocate for themselves. And having an electronic medical record system that's standardized would alleviate that issue. Another problem is just a lack of providers. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough nurses. The pandemic has further increased the unavailability of medical practitioners. So unfortunately, we have not enough residency spots in this country when we train doctors. And we need more residency spots, you know, because there are people who don't match into a residency yes. after completing medical school. That's actually pretty common. And I think that we should have more you know, residency spots and so on and so forth. You know, I think like there's so many things mm -hmm. that, you know, we could do to improve healthcare. Another thing is, like I was mentioning before, you know, a lot of people, they go to the ER, they don't actually belong there. They actually belong in their primary care right. physician's office. And that's really common, unfortunately. Um, but we don't have a, like a good level of healthcare literacy, just like financial literacy, right? You know, we're yes. always trying to increase financial literacy and we're trying to increase, I think, also health literacy when it comes to, you know, situations where people are like, well, I don't know, you know, it, should I go to urgent care? Should I go to the ER? You know, people don't understand, you know, where they need to go. Um, and I think that that is 
like a sort of a function of sort of education that that needs to be addressed, you know, much earlier, you know, ideally in elementary school <laughs> or junior yeah. high, you know, as, you're as also, like, you're also trying to navigate this under duress in right. pain, right. in a state of trauma. And so right. for all of those reasons, that, that, that alone should be enough of a reason to encourage us to simplify this system and everyone just sort of knowing what the the default, the good defaults should be. Uh, you fell into five figures of medical debt. You describe that in your book. And this is not a singular problem. This is a, I mean, medical debt is a pandemic in this country. 10% of Americans have significant medical debt. Many of us who go into bankruptcy, it's led by medical costs. What was your experience uh, working through medical debt as a patient and any advice for how we can bring that advocacy that you talk about, that literacy that you say is so important to our work as we try to ultimately reduce our, our burden, our financial burden? Absolutely. So there are so many things that we should be doing. There are a lot of errors in medical billing, and that happens simply because of the volume of medical bills that are you know taking place and the sort of intentional complications of the system, right? You know, I would encourage everyone who has health insurance, you know, if you don't have health insurance to get health insurance through the healthcare exchange or, you know, through your workplace and to really look at what your plan includes and where you can go before you're seeking care, especially care that, you know, might require prior authorization. That's something that, you know, people run into a lot, right? You know, they go, they think like, oh, you know, I can get this taken care of. Here's my doctor. Unfortunately, we live in a complicated, messy world of health insurance. And a lot of people don't understand, you know, what that's all about. So to read your plan can be really helpful. It's a slog, but can be really mm -hmm. useful. You know, if you have any questions to call the the uh, customer service line on the back of your card. And also, you know, to make sure that, you know, if there's any additional information, you know, unfortunately, this ends up being potentially a full-time job if you have a lot of medical debt or medical bills and not everyone has the, has the time or, you know, the ability to sit on the phone and talk through these things. Um, you know, with their health insurance provider, but, you know, just to get information whenever you can, um, to ask for clarification, to ask for everything in writing can all be really helpful in sort of understanding what you're ultimately responsible for. Also never pay the first bill oh. because usually it's not correct or it hasn't been sent through all the insurance. And so you end up with a bill that may not be actually accurate. Hmm. Um, don't do what I did. <laughs> Which was what? <laughs> Which was I um, I went and ignored bills um, until they had already gone to collections. And that was that was a problem for me because it affected my credit score for many, many years. I know that there is legislation now that's new that hopefully will prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. But, you know, I think it's it's really important to, you know, ultimately open your mail and yeah. face the music. It was something that I absolutely really struggled with for a long time. And then ultimately, like what happened was I, you know, I was paying, you know, the minimum I was required to pay with my collection agency who would periodically call me and harass me on the phone to try and increase my payment. And ultimately, it sort of fell beyond the statute of limitations 
I called them. My bank had been sold to another bank and I thought, okay, you know, I need to give them the new routing numbers so that way they can, you know, continue to deduct the minimum on my payment, you know, forever. And a woman said, well, you know, it's beyond the statute of limitations. I'll just cancel this and have a great day. Wow. Wow. (laughs) It just, sometimes it's just getting the right person on the phone. Yeah. A lot of it is just getting the right person on the phone. And, and that can be really, you know, that can be a struggle, right? Because you've got, you know, in terms of health insurance, you know, you might, you might end up having to call your doctor's office back and say, Hey, you know, this bill needs to include this, this code. So, you know, there's all these codes for medical billing and, you know, making sure your bill includes the correct code. Um, that's another thing that I, I recommend people do. You know, if, if you're having trouble getting something paid by your health insurance to make sure that the codes that are on your bill match the codes that they would cover. There's also a whole legion of medical bill advocates, some I would guess better than others. Any any advice on how to find a good medical bill advocate who can then do the work of calling and <laughs> helping you find the right person and all of that important work? You know, I wish there were, you know, better options. I think that some some of these programs can be predatory and you mm-hmm. need to watch out for that. You know, there are often patient advocacy services, you know, affiliated with healthcare systems who can potentially help you sort of navigate your your healthcare needs. But in terms of, you know, recommendations, I don't know if I have anything specific beyond that. Mm-hmm. I know in New York State, there is a, um, I think, a state-run program of medical bill advocates. I think maybe starting with the not-for-profits or the organization. Yeah, I I think you're right. There can be some otherwise predatory participants (laughs) in this, just like with any other sort of financial relief agency. What was the reaction that you got from writing this book in terms of like any glimmer of hope that when you write a book, you, you release it into the world and you hope that everyone reads it, but that also like the right type of people read it who might be able to take what you've written to take action or use it as evidence of what needs to happen and maybe people in power doing something helpful to enact change. Any of that? has happened? That's my goal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Uh, But no, I think, you know, it is, um, it is complicated, right? Because so many of our politicians um, receive significant lobbying, you know, support um, from lobbyists um, who represent the health insurance industry. Um, or the healthcare industry um, in various capacities, um, and I, I think that that's can you know that's potentially really, uh, it's a problem, right? <laughs> um, you know, money money makes the world go round, which is good and bad, um, and and so I think you know hopefully with more people reading my book and you know and and hearing you know the experiences of other people, I've I've run into so many folks who have said you know gosh, like I had this experience or I had a friend who had this experience or, you know, thank you for talking about your medical debt because I'm afraid to talk about mine. Um, And I think that just sort of normalizing medical debt um, is a big goal of mine because I feel like a lot of people have it and it's not your fault, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think also with the pandemic, we've got a lot of people who are now 
sort of entering the realm of chronic illness for the very first time. You know, we have all these folks who have long COVID or who are, you know, have suffered some kind of complication or so we have a lot, we have sort of like a legion of newly disabled folks who weren't disabled prior to the pandemic. And I think that, you know, that, you know, unfortunately means that we will have more people who are sort of you know, entering this realm of medical debt, medical billing, having to deal with, you know, these issues for the very first time, which is something that hopefully will help raise awareness. That's like sort of the silver lining in all of this. Yeah. And I think the way that you write is so different and important different, you know, where it's not, you're not going to, you read your book, Cost of Living, and you're not getting sort of like a textbook or, you know, the traditional chapter book. The guide to medical the billing. guide, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah, you absolutely. for that. Like, like the how-to. How right, um, right. But it's, it's just, it's so honest and immersive, but at the same time, very well researched. What was the, I, I can imagine, you know, uh, as, as any author, but particularly because of the experiences you went through, that this was difficult to write in some ways. What was what was the hardest essay to write and why? Oh, good question. Honestly, probably the title essay, Cost of Living, because I didn't, I hadn't yet talked about a lot of the things that sort of came up in that essay, particularly my medical debt, my suicide attempt, and so on and so forth. Um, I read, I wrote that essay in graduate school. Um, and I remember bringing it to my thesis advisor. And I said, you know, I'm writing this stuff. And the response was like, this is very dark. <laughs> this is too dark. I don't know if you can write this. I thought, okay, you know, well, so I actually ended up getting a different thesis advisor out of all of that. But it was a really intense experience for me. I think I recommend that anyone who's writing about, you know, intense experiences, whether they be, you know, your suicide attempts, your medical, you know, medical debt, um, anything healthcare related, I think, you know, being misdiagnosed is very common. People like to write about their misdiagnosis. I think it's really important to seek professional help during that process, you know, mm -hmm. to find a good therapist and someone who can sort of help you on the emotional side. So that way you can do the writing that you need to do. Yeah. And that was going to be my next question, which is that as you have now come on the other side of your, of your writing and also your journey through the healthcare system. And how would you describe your sort of state of health and how did you go about finding the right people to work with? That is also really challenging because even like for my son, I'm trying, I was trying to find him a therapist. Mm -hmm. Impossible. Yeah. In our, at least within like 10 mile radius of where we live or 20 mile radius, it was like, we'd love to help, but we're booked and you know, we'll let you know. And then luckily I had an opening come up uh, with a local therapist and it's been great, but it was like, it just took like a half a day, just like emailing and calling and a lot of times just hitting dead ends. But now just even finding the right doctor is so hard. And it feels like it's a privilege to get the right doctor because of like a friend of mine, thought she had MS through her network at her son's private school, <laughs> was able to find someone who knew someone whose father was like on the board of some hospital and got her into like a very last minute appointment with the best MS doctor in town. Right. So again, access, privilege. It feels like these are the people who are winning right. in, this, in this rat race of trying to just get basic and good health care. Anyway, that's maybe something else to talk about too. But for you, like, how would you define your state right now, where you are, and how did you get to where you are? It sounds like you've, you've, 
you're you're healthier and you know you're better, but I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Um, no, things are. I think overall, um, I'm doing pretty pretty okay, um, pretty good. I think that you know it's really important to have people who specifically trust and believe you. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that that's really important and really hard to find because you know, especially if you're if you're a woman seeking healthcare, a lot of women are not um, taken seriously. People of color are not taken seriously. You know, if you're you know LGBTQ, you you may face significant discrimination as well. And so I think it's really important to find uh, providers you can trust, and that's something that. I think can be a challenge, especially if you're on an HMO and you don't have choices in terms of your doctors. If you have a PPO, a lot of the time, you know, it's like you said, it's, you know, based on, oh, you know, I have a good primary care physician, you know, like I like, let me refer, you know, to you or something like that, you know, or um, there's, I know, an increase in sort of concierge medicine where, Mm -hmm you know, people pay to be part of a particular group of specialists. I don't have any of that. (laughs) You know, I just have like my regular health insurance, um, thankfully through my partner's work. Otherwise I would be, I think, subject to what's available on the healthcare exchange right now, which is not great in Illinois. And I think that a lot of it is just sort of trial and error and just trying to find someone who um, understands you and who believes you and who can take your concerns seriously. A lot of what I I recommend for people who are on that path to try and finding a doctor is to both make a list or, you know, a spreadsheet or, you know, write everything down that's going on with you. Because I think, you know, the pressure and the experience of being in the physician's office can be really stressful. And it's really important to have, you know, something that you can refer to, like a checklist or something along those lines. And then also don't be afraid to bring someone with you, you know, like bring a a partner or a friend, you know, to, to bring someone with you to doctor's appointments. It can be really helpful. They can take notes. They can be your advocate. They can, you know, hang out with you in the waiting room. Those are both things that I have used when sort of going through this process to try and find uh, appropriate care. Yes. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's a great reminder, having someone with you to even just take notes who may not be the expert in the room, certainly, but, but of course, you know, it all goes back to, you know, remembering that as someone who is going through an illness, you're not exactly in the right mental capacity to like take in all of the important things that next steps. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot. It's just an overwhelming experience on, you know, on top of going already through an overwhelming experience. Emily Maloney, thank you so much. I want to praise your book here. Uh, Well, I'll use the, uh, the New York Times praise, calling your book astute, compassionate, and lethally funny, Sarah Manguso says, Maloney is an exceptionally alert writer on whom nothing is lost, who sees everything with excruciating clarity. Wow. That gave me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm blushing. Thank you oh so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for writing this book and for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Emily for joining us. Again, her book is called The Cost of Living. And I want to mention if you are struggling or having thoughts about suicide, please reach out to confidential resources that can help you. The Crisis Text Line and the Suicide Prevention Lifeline are free. Highly recommend them. Text HOME HOME to 741 741. It's free. 24 7 crisis support in this country. You can also call 1 800 
273-8255 to reach the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Be sure to come back here on Wednesday when we'll be focusing on the cost of living through the lens of gig work. Our guest is Alexandria Ravenel, author of Hustle and Gig, Struggling and Surviving in the Sharing Economy. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your day is so money 